Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Scroll Podcast. My name is Ryan, and with me, we have a special guest today that is Tyler Crumrine of Possible World Games. How are you doing this morning, Tyler? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's a yeah. uh, it's a balmy day here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, reminding me uh, the slow death of our planet as uh, winter lasts fewer and fewer days and weeks every year. Hey, you know what? I'll take it for now, but I know it's awful. Let's just say that. I used to live in Pennsylvania, actually. Yeah. Um, the other side, where like half the fucking indie scene apparently lives, like you finding well, out everyone lives in problem. Philadelphia. Like a lot yeah. of people don't realize that you can fit multiple countries in the European Union inside of Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. Like it is it is a large state. And it was always uh like a personal bugbear of mine. Anytime I would see like a band that I like, you know, they're like, we're doing our national tour. And they'd be like, we're going to every state, blah, blah, blah. And they would go to Philly, but they wouldn't go to Pittsburgh. I'm like, you guys. It's a four hour like, drive from Pittsburgh to Philly. A, it's a good, it's it's a minute. You gotta you gotta yeah. pop into Mr. Smalls. Um, hey, we got, well, so we got Rusted in, Root out here. I'm in California. So yeah. uh, if you're not in L.A., you're not seeing anybody and it's like a 12 hour drive from top to bottom. So I feel you. Trust me. I'm right there yeah. with you. Um, so uh, so for those that might not know, uh, know you or Possible World Games, can you tell us um, just a little bit about Possible World Games and um, maybe some of the stuff that uh, you've put out that people might know? Yeah, I will start with one very small correction, and it's one that I do a lot, and that it is possible worlds games. It, there uh, is an S. I see it right there on the screen. We have so many of them. We have just dozens. Well, less dozens, more like, I don't know, coming up on 10 worlds that you can explore with worlds, possible worlds. It. Uh, it's all, it is not in my Twitter bio or Twitter handle because um, not enough characters for worlds. So I'm just possible W games on there. And then like that makes for its own kind of, you know, pile of problems with like, well, I've got to be on Instagram and I've got to be on TikTok and I've got to be on all these other places. Because if any one of these like lifelines for my personal livelihood just decides to disappear one day, you, you got to di diversify. Um, yeah. But before I was possible worlds games, I was um, I was just uh you know, random hobbyist game designer. I actually was a full-time dramaturg, which is the most pretentious title in theater. Uh, I was a, like the editing guy. Um, basically, a dramaturg is to a new play what a uh, editor is to a novel. So I would work with playwrights, a lot of like, you know, honing work, kind of identifying like scenes to be added, removed, character motivations. If there's like a talk back after a play or something like that, I'd usually be the one moderating those, writing programs um, for plays, things like that. Uh, and that is a job that a lot of theaters don't have someone on staff doing those things. They hire them for specialized projects. Like if there is a new play from like a new writer or something that requires a bunch of extra research, they will bring in a dramaturg to be like, hey, we just would appreciate having an extra creative in the room to help make sure that this is a smooth process. Um, and I had a network of theaters throughout Pennsylvania and off Broadway in New York that would bring me in for shows, you know, like one show a year. But if you have like a handful of theaters, you can cobble together a living doing that. And so 
I was working in theater and doing some editing on the side uh, as like a literary person who also just enjoyed RPGs. Um, I started off editing games for World Champ Game Co., a friend of the pod. Um, yeah, I love Adam. Adam. We, we often me... say this is an Adam Vastan podcast. So, yeah, uh... gave me a lot of my earliest opportunities in the space. Um, and I had been making a small game of my own on the side called Beak, Feather, and Bone. Um, when folks like encouraged me, like, Hey, you should, you know, it was the second zine quest, you know, zine quest one was a surprise hit zine quest two. Everyone was like, why the hell not? You know, let's mm -hmm. hop in. Um, and so at friends encouraging, I put it up with the goal of a thousand dollars, uh, and it raised $20,000. Um, and then my career disappeared because a pandemic happened and yeah. all of the theaters closed their doors. Um, so I am still like eternally grateful that I had this project that was like, okay, I have some momentum here. If I can lean into this, you know, maybe this will get me through until I figure out like when theaters are opening back up or, you know, how am I going to weather this storm? And what I found was that theaters didn't open back up nearly fast enough. Well, for my career, I think personally, I think theaters could still be pumping their brakes some uh, with like some of the more reckless stuff they're doing out there. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, like continuing to sell and fulfill Beak, Feather and Bone wound up being a full-time job. And so going into the year following, I was like, you know, I think theater isn't going to be kind of doing it anymore. And a lot of the like experimental stuff that helped me get my name in theater was also the things that were like really fun pieces, but like I was never going to get a desk job. Like the best I could hope for is like being a really good freelancer, which is its own like very stressful way of living as an artist. Um, so I decided like, hey, I'm going to do another campaign. Uh, I'm going to incorporate an LLC so I don't get fucked on taxes again. And if I can repeat the success of Beak, Feather and Bone, um, then I'll try and make a go at it full time. And so that is when I put up the Possible Worlds box set um, that is a collection of six games, uh, each of them like about 30 pages long, similar length to Beak, Feather, and Bone, um, but just different stuff that kind of showcased my design ethos, like the style of games I'm interested in, you know, the different kinds of like worlds and genres I'm interested in. And thankfully, that project funded too. Uh, so kind of since then, I have been just trying to figure out like, okay, you know, as someone who had an early breakout hit, how do you translate this into a career? You know, how do you make sure that like, I am, you know, making projects that I'm happy with, but also thinking about things like, okay, a key part of making a living in tabletop is going to conventions and selling at conventions. And if I'm going to have to go to conventions, I don't want to have two games on my table. So I'm going to do a box set of six so that when I start going to conventions, I'll have seven games on my table. And even if people, you know, don't buy all seven, maybe they'll want one or two. So a lot of things like that of like continuing to put out games, support games. I did an expansion for Beak, Feather and Bone, more maps that won me an any, which led to all of its own, you know, joys and problems and things like that. Uh, and now I am back with my next original game, 
um, the details of our escape, which is my return to zine quest and also just like trying to do a little bit of what I did in collaborative spaces like the theater, um, translate that to RPGs some and kind of do like a slower generational process that also invites like artists from other spheres uh, into the scene. And it, it's, it's I hadn't said that I worked in theater. You could probably tell from the monologue, although I appreciate your providing the props. Hey, you know, uh, that's that's what we've always said over and over again. Our best interviews are when we can just sit here and listen. And that's exactly what we like to be is just a platform for people to to be as passionate about what they are doing as we are about what they're doing. Um, I will say there are not I don't think there are many indie creators out there that can say that um uh they had three projects back to back to back that went for twenty thousand dollars on kickstarter eighteen thousand dollars on kickstarter and thirty thousand dollars on kickstarter so to do what's the math on that like 60 grand on your first three projects across kickstarter out of nowhere um it's gotta feel nice because as you know we talked a little bit before stream like that's not it's not like that's it. You know, a lot of these projects and, and you talked about the LLC and stuff, um, they're still selling and they're still selling out and you're still distributing these all over the place. So it started a whole thing. Um, so it's 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 really neat and interesting to hear the timing couldn't have been better, clearly, with the pandemic. But um, how how one thing catapulted into these continuous successes and then getting us to the project that we're at right now. It's just really interesting because I, I love, again, we've talked about this before stream. I love these. I love, I love that they're spiral bound. Um, and uh, Hounds is my favorite. And uh, it's just really fantastic to hear that um, the success is continuing um, and you have like all of the problems of, of more success, which, you know, good problems. Which to is have. also like, you know, fascinating because like there have been, you know, a number of and so another fun thing that has happened within the last year uh, is that I've also started to teach game design and publishing uh, at Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh, uh, which is wild because I used to temp for them. I was the lowest of the low. Uh, literally was just like mooching healthcare off the university because uh, they let me like as a temp kind of come and go as I had theater projects. Um, but, you know, when they had an opening in their like IDA, you know, collaborative learning environment for a professor, someone local recommended me as like, hey, we have a game designer in town who does this kind of work. They reached out. It's like, oh, yeah, I used to teach theater and university settings all the time. And I was like, I don't have a master's or a Ph.D., though. Like, is that OK? Because your job application says a terminal degree is required. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're you're a professional. You know, like that's that's more valuable than that. It's, it's enough, fine. You right? figure it out as you go. But, you know, through that um, and working with these students and, you know, really thinking intentionally about like the different ways that someone can, you know, be an RPG designer. Uh, because this course that I teach has, it's an elective, it is open to all majors. CMU has a game design major, but um, this is one that is like open to anyone. Like it can count towards the minor if you want it to. It's kind of a portal course. But I have a number of people who are taking that class who are like, I eat and breathe tabletop role-playing games and I want to learn 
you know, better ways to kind of like design and, you know, play test and uh, distribute these games that I already love and that like, I just want to be an even closer part to the scene or people who are like, yeah, I am on a career track. I am paying to go to university to prepare me for a career. And the career that I want is tabletop games or video games or game design in general. And I also have just as many, if not more students in that class who are like, well, it sounded more interesting than pottery. You know, they're taking yeah. it because they're like, you know, yeah, it just sounded fun. And so I'll go through the class and I'll ask like, so what are your uh, day one? I'll ask like, what's your experience playing, you know, role playing games? And I'll have some people saying like, I've been playing in the same Vampire the Masquerade campaign, you know, since I was a freshman in high school. And you have some people who are like, well, I don't really play RPGs or video games, but I really enjoy character creation in The Sims, you know? And so a lot of like, you know, even as we talk about the success of you know, my Kickstarters and my business and things like that. A lot of that is because it became very clear to me early on that this was a life raft for me. I was like, I have the skills, I have the publishing skills and the creative like product management skills for my time in theater. I also ran a small press for theatrical literature. So like I knew how to lay out books. I knew how to print books. Um, and so I was like, hey, I'm going to make a lot of decisions that are motivated by the fact that, yes, I love this, but also I need this to pay my rent. And it is just as valid and just as, like, you know, deserving of, uh, like, you know, praise for someone to just have an enriching hobby, you know? Right. Like, I do not think that the students in my class that are, like, looking to get career advice are any more valuable or valid than the student who is, like, hey, I'm just looking for something that might be fun for this semester. Or maybe they pick up like a hobby that they get into during undergrad and then they never play again. Or, you know, maybe they own the only games they make are the games that they make for a grade in my class. But even then, like one of their playtesting assignments is like run this game for your family, you know, run this game for people in your hometowns. And even if that's the only time they do that, that is such like a like really beautiful experience to be like, I made a game, play it with me, you know? And oh, yeah. so as we talk about like the success of possible worlds games and also like the trials of possible worlds games, a lot of people don't tell you that like as a small indie, when I won uh, an any for the expansion of Beak, Feather and Bone Claw Atlas, um, it led to a huge uptick in sales, but also it, my entire inventory sold out, you know, and suddenly, you know, it's post Gen Con, I've got packs unplugged, you know, like in the, you know, in the window. And I'm like, how do I get all of these games? You know, how do I make sure that like, I have what I need to, to, you know, continue to pay my rent? Because it's one thing for your distributor to say like, oh my gosh, these games are selling like hotcakes please send us a thousand copies of Beat Feather and Bone. But when you're like, you know, a small to now, I would consider myself more of like a medium indie. Uh, it's a lot of learning to figure out like, okay, they want a thousand copies. I need to print more than a thousand copies so I can satisfy them and also have stock for myself. And when I send them those thousand copies, even if they were all to sell out tomorrow, they pay out on a quarterly basis. 
So whatever money I'm spending to print these copies, I know that I'm not going to get a return on my investment until the end of the quarter when I get a paycheck. So things like that, and even like, I love the Wirebound games. Like <laughs> that was like a key element of that box set for me. And love there are it. some people it. who like just have never engaged with those games because they're like, I can't read it. They're like flipping it, turning it too complicated. Or folks are like, yeah, I don't really know where it would go on my shelf, et cetera. Um, even the box, which the box I say is like, it's a like, 30 page this thing. game. You can figure it out. But yeah. The more I go to conventions, the more I ship games to distributors, the more retailers tell me like, hey, I love your games. I don't have a shelf to put them on. You know, that ultimately led me to like make the decision to switch that suit to, you know, paperbacks uh, just because I'm like, well, it's going to be a lot easier to print and move these around. Um, but now I am in like the situation where it's like, man, but I... I'd really not like a nice little case for them. Like all their widths are different now. So they don't really like fit the same in that box. So I'm like, do I print more of these boxes? Do I make like a cool kind of like cloth solution for it? A la like Deernicorn stuff. But um, yeah, so all that to say, thank you. Like I, I really appreciate it. But also, you know, if anyone is hearing about like the successes that I've had or the ways that I've been able to make a career out of it. Um, I would encourage you that like, rather than feel less than or feel jealous, like please shoot me an email because like literally I would not be here if not for the generosity of people like Adam Voss, people like Will Yopst, you know, the entire brain trust uh, extended universe. Um, because like when I had questions, I asked them. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I needed support, I reached out for it. Uh, so if anyone is listening to this stuff and being like, damn, like, couldn't be me. Like, yeah, it could be. But also, it doesn't yeah. have to be. Like, I am not yeah. any more legitimate of a designer than anyone else because it pays my rent. If anything, like, <laughs> I'm just under more stress because there I know go. I'll die if I don't make hey, a game. Listen, a wise man once said, more money, more problems, you know? Yes, and, that's uh, true. Yeah, I think that was Charles Dickens. And yeah, in the, yeah, the so. hit story, A Christmas, uh, is it a Christmas story, Christmas tale? I, I just remember uh, Ebenezer Scrooge shouting out his window at that orphan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> more money, more yeah. problems. Exactly. That's the one. Um, yeah. I will say that the Christmas. Buying all these turkeys as big as me, you know, the goose in the store window, it's it's stressful. So um, I will say, and it's funny because we did talk about the wirebound thing before. And the first thing I said was, God, I love these are wirebound. And it became this whole thing. And it's great. I'm very glad I have a, a copy of the wirebound ones. I love them. And I find all the reasons that you did originally make them wirebound are good reasons. And it's very irritating that people see any minor discomfort to their current status quo as a uh, a hurdle versus an opportunity. So uh, I'm, whatever the solution though is, if you come up with another box that I'm gonna have to buy that too. So um, let's, <laughs> I'm okay if you hold off on that for a little bit. Um, well, if people but... want like the last wirebounds in existence, check your friendly local game store. <laughs> Some of them might have those. I know Indie Press Revolution still has a handful in stock um, <laughs> because they want to make sure that they move through all those before they take any of the paperbacks. And then I have like 
a handful of copies of Scene Thieves and Hounds, the Wirebound editions on of those. Um, that again, just like I don't really travel with anymore. Uh, so they are up on my web store at a discount. So if folks want to see uh, what we're talking about, like head on over there. You can get it for like eight bucks. Yeah, and and Hounds is my favorite game. I know, I know it's. I know uh, you want people to. It was a dating sim and um, dating sim and wishlist are the ones wishlist. that like get the least. Oh, people! I can't say that they get the least amount of play because you know once you release a game, it's out of your hands. You only really know what people are vocal about online. Um, right. But I will say, like all of the other games, I've heard you know like seen streams or heard actual plays, which is like really just you know balm for my soul like i love anytime like any audience size if you ever play one of my games please like tag me so that i know so that i can listen to it it brings me so much joy um but wishless and dating sim are the two that like i feel like haven't really had their um their time in the sun uh which i say not you know because like I financially benefit from hype for games, but because they are two of the games that like I designed wishless is very much how I run traditional campaigns. And so I was like, this is for the old heads and dating.sim is the game that I designed. Like, okay, this is my game for people who have never played RPGs before. I've never even heard of them before. Um, so they are like on opposite ends of the accessibility spectrum. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious to see how how folks jive with them, you know, like in conversation. Maybe we'll have to engage with them here on the on the stream at some point. Maybe when we're not doing an episode every other day, but yeah, uh, maybe not I, when it's great, you know, you know, Zine Quest Month Hell. So right, yeah, um, a good a good hell though. Uh, we we love that we're able to to have conversations like this and talk about um projects that are are uh, out for zine quest and then speaking of that you have a project that's out right now on zine quest something you've been working on for years um yeah. and uh it's out right now so this is the details of our escape so tell us about the details of our escape so the details of our escape is um an experiment in a lot of ways but a really fruitful one um so like i said i used to uh work in theater and i used to own and run a theater publishing company called Plays Inverse. Plays one word, inverse another word. And kind of the idea with that is that there are a lot of plays that never get published um, unless it's for an acting edition. Uh, because a lot of play publishers make money through performance royalties, not through the individual sales of their books. So when you see like an acting edition, it just kind of has the title, no cover art, you know, often kind of like cramped uh, text layout because they want to save money on pages, things like that. Uh, because what they're doing is they're printing an instruction manual. They're not printing a book. They're like, we want to get like as many copies of this as we can into high schoolers hands so that when they perform you know like i i wanted to say waiting for godot but like god bless whatever high school is performing that although i'm sure they are like too many people pressure kids like perform the quote-unquote greats uh when really they should just do something that like lets them goof off with their friends anyway uh so a lot of plays you know they have to get their reps in 
you know, before they're attractive enough for an acting edition, because basically it's like, oh, if this had a run on Broadway, other people are going to want to perform this too. And what that means is a lot of the experimental plays, a lot of the like niche stuff, the weird stuff, the like hard to perform, but like really interesting uh, plays just never see the light of day. You know, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And maybe you see it performed in a garage somewhere or, you know, it's someone writes it and no one produces it. No one like, and because no one's producing it, it's not attractive for publishing. So it just winds up in a hard drive somewhere. I created plays in verse uh, to champion those kind of plays, print them the way you would a book of poetry and just say that like, yeah, reading a play is, you know, enjoyable the same way that reading an RPG that you haven't played can still be enjoyable. You know, there are so many different elements about uh, that kind of form of literature. And part of why I really resonate with RPGs is because it is a similar uh, lineage of like, you know, a kind of literature that is always incomplete on its own, you know, is enjoyable on its own, but like it asks something of the reader. It invites participation. So I was running this. And one of the things that were my favorite projects is I would often work with poets who had never written a play before. Um, there were people who had like really strong command of language, uh, you know, very strong um, voice and like choreography elements in their poetry. And I would be like, hey, I think you do a really great job writing a play. You know, if you have a concept, let me know and I can be your dramaturg. I can teach you dramatic structure, but I can't teach you how to have a unique voice and a unique vision. Um, and so that was super fun. And I love that collaboration. I love that back and forth. And I love that discovery of seeing like, oh, someone completely outside of theater, what did they bring to this? And so I like a passion project of mine was to do the same thing in, uh, in RPGs. Uh, and so there was one day where I was just kind of like, moaning and groaning about how much it sucks to run a Kickstarter um, because it really is like it's it's I, I will say that this one is a lot easier now, like being a handful of campaigns in and also a year into my OCD therapy. Uh, I'm now properly medicated. Uh, not that everyone should be taking Luvox if they want to run a Kickstarter campaign. Um, but the idea like I was just kind of saying online is like, you know, someone could just like invest in me, too you know, and I could just make a cool game. And uh, Riley Coyote from um, the Afterthought Committee, uh, it been like a, a Twitter mutual of mine for a while. They reached out through my DMs and they're like, well, how much are you talking? You know, like, what would that look like? And I was like, hey, you know, I have this idea that if I had like the money to fund a residency, I just want to take a talented illustrator from outside of RPGs a talented writer from outside of RPGs and just finance them for, you know, 10 months of work where each, like all they're required to do is come up with five pages, basically just fund their morning pages and say like, all right, January, it's the comic artist turn. They're going to draw something and they're going to send it to the writer. The writer's going to write something, you know, so you always get a month off and you send it back and forth. Um, and so after that committee was like, yeah, we're, we would be willing to make an investment in this help to kind of fund the, like, you know, this initial process with the idea being that like, it will eventually result in a game, you know, uh, and we will be made whole. Uh, so we came into that agreement. I reached out to Linnea Sterta, uh, who is, 
Eisner nominated award-winning comics artist uh, did Stages of Rot and uh, Frog in the Fall, both through uh, Piao Books. Uh, really, really love her work. Really like Mobius style, um, like wild out there uh, world building. Um, reached out to Linnea. They were on board. Reached out to Renee Gladman, uh, who has a series uh, called The Ravikians uh, that is just like phenomenal, um, really like cool speculative fiction um, that is just so different from anything else you're going to read. Like I was reading one of her novels and there is like this group, they're exploring this old abandoned church and they encounter someone and they realize this person is speaking a different language from them. Uh, and that person, like their language is puffs of air. And there's an entire society of these people that are living in the catacombs under this church. And the protagonist just like, live with them for a while and like tell you what it's like living in the society trying to learn their customs trying to learn their language and it's fascinating stuff um so at the end of a year of them generating work we had all this beautiful illustration all this fantastic writing and both of them really complemented each other uh, we didn't require them you know to like we didn't give any prompts it's like you have to make this you have to make this it was just kind of like yeah do what you want and be inspired as much or as little by what's come before it. And by the end, we had this like short story collection of chapters uh, about this group of 2,348 people uh, who were like a caravan of people traveling, escaping something, looking for something better, and not really sure what either was, you know? but just like strange and magical obstacles that they were encountering along the way. And also just the difficulties of playing with a group, like, you know, being part of a group that large. And Linnea was similarly making all this like kind of travel imagery. And so by the end of that process, it was handed off to me uh, to design a game around it. Um, and I saw like, okay, this is travel. You know, if we want like the mechanic to also serve as a metaphor for the game. What is something that is like a path? What is something that is like a journey? And um, that's when dominoes came to mind. I've been playing a lot of, uh, you know, like traditional dominoes uh, with my partner's family. I was like, okay, this is a path, you know, and also like a 28 set of dominoes, like has some really interesting probability curves and it has two numbers on each domino. I was like, I can, I can work with this. And so through combining the art, the fiction, and then also just kind of my own like design uh, proclivities towards games that are, you know, like low, uh, low buy-in, you know, I call it dollar store design, not requiring anyone to have play materials that they couldn't find at a dollar store. And it's like dominoes are pretty accessible, but we're also including uh, cutout sheets of dominoes for anyone who doesn't want to go buy some. Um, and I designed that game and I took a year to play test it, mostly just locally around Pittsburgh, uh, getting in front of people, figuring out how it felt, how it played. Um, and the end result is the details of our escape. Uh, and it really is this RPG that is, you know, one part art book, one part speculative fiction, one part rule book, because all of them get like equal levels of showcase and interest in the like zine itself. Uh, and it's also something that is unlike any other RPGs out there um, because, you know, it was devised by people outside of RPGs. 
We're just like, these are the kind of stories we're interested in. These are the kind of groups that we're interested in. And the challenge fell to me of like, okay, how do you make a game that is caravan style role-playing where instead of playing individual characters, you are playing groups of hundreds. And, you know, and then what do the stakes look like for those characters? If you're playing a group of 200, you know, like what does it look like for their journey to end or to continue? And how can I mechanize those things using the numbers available on the dominoes? Um, and so, yeah, that's what we've arrived at. And I needed to put out a game early this year and Zine Quest is in February and it's going to be approximately 30 to 50 pages. So it's like, all right, saddling up for one more ride. There you go. Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating. Like I like I said before, the first time I heard about this project was when you were on um, the RTFM podcast. Um, also, go listen to that. That is better than us. Um, but uh, I will not uh, if, listen to some other episodes before you listen to my episode because Aaron <laughs> is like both of Aaron and Max have both said that my episode is not the worst episode of the podcast. It is the worst game that the podcast has read. It's um, game. Did sound Aegon, agony, yeah. something. It's like an English adaptation of a fan series of fantasy novels that has never been translated to English. It's only available in French. Uh, so, like, there's an interesting conversation to be had about, like, adapting literature into RPGs and what does it mean to play, like, the Lord of the Rings role-playing game if Lord of the Rings was a series of books that, like, no one was able to read. Uh, mm. But it's also just, like, a real shitty game. And so a lot of it is us clowning on it and me, like, dragging them through the, like, Disney theme park tour of this book as they are mm. kicking and screaming, being like, we want to go back to the hotel. Right. But it it's also an interesting link to or or there's interesting I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, like a parallel between that and the game that you're talking about, where they took um a literary work and tried to adapt it into a game as opposed to what you have done, and that is to actually have an artist and a writer create and then you gamify it um because it sounds like what they attempted to do to a point i guess with agony or whatever it's called uh unsuccessfully but the fact that you're not able to read the source material makes it it's it's a lot harder to i think understand the game mechanics because it's like is that there because it's in the book or is that there because this game mechanic sucks you know versus you know uh what you're working on now so it was it was a it was a nice parallel to hear um that episode specifically because of that link and then, then to now see the project on Kickstarter with that. Um, one question I had right off the bat, is there a reason that there's exactly 2,348 people or was that just a random number? It's just what came up in Renee's gotcha. writing. Like it showed up in her first chapter that she did. And I was like, okay, this is fascinating. And then each chapter, like the that the group size is like mentioned over and over again. And so I was like, okay, this is a key part, part of it. Like I, yeah. uh, and I wanted to like honor that. Um, so that is always the starting point of the game. And that is the, yeah. like the group number that is mentioned in all of the fiction interspersed throughout the text. But as the game goes on, you know, each leg of the journey, you are going to reach a door 
you know, whether a literal one or like a figurative one, like kind of a threshold to the next part of the journey. And depending on the tiles that are present um, in your path to get to that door, your group will either stick with the caravan or they will settle in the surrounding area. Like their journey ends there. Um, there's also like, I see this as a low lethality game. I would rather it be a game about people escaping from something and finding what they're looking for early rather than people fleeing something and, you know, being cut down, you know, as a result. Uh, so the, but like, so ultimately you have your groups that have like, you know, what they're searching for. And once they, you know, find it, like it is a mechanical element that says like, no, you have no choice. Like they, they are stopping here. They have found what they're looking for here. How did they find what they were looking for here? But then if you're playing a group of 600, that 600 is going to be subtracted from your 2000 plus. And the game goes until either the group has dwindled and, you know, the game decides for you what the final destination is. Or, you know, like so many small indie games, it's like play until you're done, you know, play until you get to a leg that's like, okay, we know this, this this phase of the game takes x minutes you know we have this much more time before like we got to catch our bus so let's play one more round and like this door is the door that we will be ending at but there are also mechanics for like refilling your caravan between sessions if you want to play it like campaign style so you can make it go as long or as short as it wants but yeah, like having that as something to latch onto as a unique design challenge was actually like a gift to me because I feel like there are so many different ways that people have done ability scores or, you know, different ways to kind of like spec your one special boy um, that there's a certain like kind of release to saying like, yeah, you are not playing as individuals. You are playing as like a collective that is unified by, you know, certain beliefs or certain practices, um, but could just as easily, you know, like diverge from each other. So you said dice are, is the, the kind of gamified aspect of this. You also dominoes. have, dominoes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You I meant dominoes. dominoes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have dominoes on it. Two two parts of that. One, I would love to hear how that's kind of incorporated. But two, there's another person on top of the project or on the project too. There's you, Linnea, Renee, but also Hannah Koto is doing yes. um, the like paper dice or what, yeah, what are they? Um, I, I keep so, saying dice. I keep meaning dominoes, but I keep saying dice. Oh, it's it's fine. I mean, that is like also... You know, like what we were talking about, about the RPGs that are like adapted properties versus mm. something built from the ground up. You know, right. you have a lot of people that are like, you know, wary of what they consider like D&D clones or something like that, because like, oh, we'll just go to the source. Or when someone makes like, you know, the Lord of the Rings game, they're like, oh, we're going to like run it in something that is very recognizable because you know when we talk about like rpgs as literature you know it's a lot of the same conversations that happen of like oh is this movie adaptation of this book still like capital c cinema you know and i think one of the ways that like this book is unique is that it is literature because it was like conceived as literature it is not like 
adapted from anything else. It is not pulling from like what other RPGs do, you know, whether it is like, well, an RPG has to have dice or an RPG has to have character sheets or these different kinds of things. It kind of was like, all right, what is our story? And then what does the story require? But at the same time, that can be like a risky move to make. I, I watched the movie um, Jupiter Ascending recently by the uh, Wachowski sisters. So like team behind the matrix got their blank check. They're like, okay, we want to make a space opera. We want to make like our own kind of star Wars. And that film was a flop because yeah. people are like, well, what is this adapted from? Like, wait, should I, because like there was a lot of explaining that happened in the movie mm -hmm. of like, well, we're doing all of this world building, but also we have to like explain all these different kinds of things. And like, yes, we're doing things different from these other films, but like, here's why. And sometimes that can be like intimidating for folks. So my hope with this project is, you know, still to kind of like have my RPG sensibility of like, I'm going to give you enough to hook you in, but let you do a lot of world building on your own. You know, the same way that Beak, Feather and Bone like gives you a map, but doesn't tell you like where the city has to be situated or like time periods or things like that. Um, but I'm also really hopeful that like the people who do take a risk on this, you know, the players who play it will also then go and read Renee's novels. We'll go and read Linnea's uh, comics and I really hope that fans of their comics and their novels, you know, in wanting to see more of that kind of maybe find their way into the hobby. Um, but Hinokoto uh, was a late addition uh, in part because I knew that like, okay, most people have dice. Not everyone has dominoes. And a domino isn't dominoes, so yeah. specialized that like you can't find it at, you know, your local dollar store or Target or something like that. But there are also a lot of people I've found at conventions that when they buy a game, like they want to go back to their hotel room and play it that night. And conventions have a lot of dice dealers. They don't have a lot of specialized domino booths. So I knew that I wanted to package in with the game, you know, uh, an approximation of dominoes uh, so that people could just like take it out of the case. You know, it's going to be bagged the same way that BFB is. Uh, and like dive right in. And as kind of like a late design decision that came after the, you know, like extensive play testing and things like that, I didn't want to like, you know, ask more of Linnea. Um, they're like a busy person with their own career. Um, but I knew that I wanted them to be something special. And I have loved Hinokoto's work, you know, ever since like Miru came on the stand yeah. and now like it's an entire suite of games, but also like their font design work, um, you know, their product design. They've been doing a lot of really cool stuff like designing cards for an eventual card game and like boxes and components, really. They're someone who understands that like, you know, something doesn't just have to be like fancy. It also has to be functional, you know, it also has to be legible. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have been able to reach out to them and say like, Hey, I don't know if you do contract work, would you be interested in designing like a set of 28 dominoes just to be printed on like two heavy stock sheets so that people can cut them out with scissors. And they were like, I don't do a lot of contract work, but that's just because people haven't been asking. Uh, so if, you know. If other folks are like, you know, thrilled to see them on this project, like, yeah, they might be willing to work on your project, too. Uh, there's someone that I think has a really great eye and talent.
for, you know, not just game design, but also thinking about how people interact with games. Mm. Um, so they've been a late addition. And as far as how those dominoes work in the game itself, they do pretty much everything. Um, there are some moments of like your kind of standard session zero type questions of like, okay, what is it like, what is the place of origin that everyone is leaving? You know, what is, uh, what is it that they're fleeing, you know? And there are also those set, um, those kind of like X card type conversations of like, okay, this is a caravan of people fleeing from something, you know, you could tell a serious story that is about refugees, or you could tell a story that is more like, all right, this, you know, people just want something exciting, you know, maybe they were bored. Or, you know, a lot of people kind of use it to tell like uh, climate stories of like, all right, you know, all the resources in this area have been used up. They're going to go somewhere else. The game starts and you have your caravan of 2000 strong and everyone draws tiles from the boneyard, which is the actual thing people call the uh, like stack of dominoes in the center of the table. Um, but say you get a tile that is a, you know, a two six, um, two six domino. Uh, you can either take one of the numbers shown on the uh, on the domino, the two or the six, multiply it times one hundred, and that is the size of your group. So you could play a group of two hundred, or you could play a group of six hundred, or you could add. This is for like a lot of this is to kind of like my general suggestion is if you want to play a shorter game, you know, multiply them by a hundred. If you want to play a longer game, you can also add those two numbers together, 2, 6, 8, multiply it by 10. You're playing a group of 80. So it's going to be a smaller group, but also because numbers are going to be subtracted in more like 100 chunks, you know, it's going to be a longer game, you know, as people fall off from the caravan. Uh, once you have your group size, you're going to decide like, all right, what are they leaving? What are they searching for? What is the thing that unifies them? You know, maybe they are like a cobbler's guild or something like that, that there is just like no more leather for them to make shoes in their region anymore. And so they are seeking somewhere new where they're going to be able to like practice their trade. Um, and then as you go, everyone also gets a uh, hand of dominoes. Um, and there is going to be a pair of keywords and Pause me if you have any questions. I know I'm kind of like, just like injecting mechanics into your brain right now. So you have your group. Each start of a leg of the journey, you're going to pick a pair of words. So maybe um, it's like one I've playtested with is strange and serene or like lush and fragile. One of those words is always going to apply to the first number in a domino. One of them is always going to apply for to the second. So that same 2-6 tile that we had, the 2 would be how strange it is. So not very strange. The 6 would be how serene it is. It's like, okay, very serene. And so you talk about like, all right, what is it that your particular group is passing by in this location that is like, you know, normal, serene, how do they interact with it? Then the next tile, you are going to play a tile that is uh, the first number of it is either the same as the ending number. So like traditional dominoes type stuff. So ends in a six, you're either going to need to start with a six or you can play a domino that is one number higher or one number lower. 
so there wouldn't be something higher than a six, but let's say there's a seven. Let's say you're playing with the extended set of dominoes. Um, if you play one higher, then that means your course has veered towards something good. And you have to tell us like, what is the thing that is good enough that you the caravan like changes its course to go towards it? If you play one under, so let's say we played a five, you're going to go, uh, you're going to change your course to avoid something bad, some kind of threat, some kind of obstacle, something like that. But because of the way that uh, the dominoes are played in sequence and the fact that the words attached to the dominoes are fixed, you're always going to have this up-down. So maybe that first tile was like too serene, sick, or... Yeah, or well, too serene would actually be not very serene. Or no, too strange. It was strange and serene. Uh, too strange, six serene. So the next one, maybe it's a six and then a five. So you're going to be suddenly in a environment that is very strange because those sixes line up and that's your first word. And then maybe you still have the five. So like maybe it's very still very serene, but things are getting stranger. And maybe you're also in a situation where like, okay, maybe it's a five that you're playing. So it's getting, it's still serene. It's getting much stranger. And also you are diverting your path to avoid something bad. What is it, you know? And how does your group, you know, interact with this? How does, how do they perceive, like, how do they travel through this? So you keep playing tiles in that way. And it results in this like very fun kind of like, subtly shifting journey that you go on as you kind of bounce back and forth between the different aspects of this leg of the journey. For the ones that were like uh, lush but fragile, it was going constantly back and forth between these like, okay, we're in this like jungle where it's like where everything is, you know, vivid and like, you know, the air is thick. And then maybe the next tile, it's like, okay, you know, we are still in that environment, but now we have come across something that is like extremely fragile, you know, what is that? Like, is it like, you know, uh, like a just a collection of flowers? Are there like crystals now? You know, is it like eggs of some kind of creature? Um, and you keep playing until you get to a player who doesn't have a valid tile to play. You know, they don't have something that lines up or is one higher or one lower. And at that point you have reached the door, you know? And you, as a group, you know, you're going to have to figure out how to get through the door, pulling from the different kinds of things that you've seen along your journey. So it's kind of an opportunity to kind of decide like, okay, what were, what were the like most interesting things that we encountered on this leg that we want to make sure that we remember, you know, if we were taking notes on this for a campaign, like what is the good stuff? Uh, you use those to get through the door and then let's go back to your two, six tile that adds up to eight. If there are any other tiles in your leg of the journey that add up to eight. So maybe it's a three, five, maybe it's a, you know, there are some probabilities that are higher or lower than others. Doubles are always gonna be, you know, near impossible to find. Um, but once you look at the uh, path, you're gonna, if it's your turn, you pluck it out of the path and you say like, okay, my group found what it's looking for. Subtract their numbers from the overall caravan. And I'm gonna tell you you know, what it is that we found here that was enough for us to like decide like, yes, this is where we're going to start our new life. And the game continues. Go through the door. 
You either maintain the groups that you've been playing or you draw new groups, you come up with new keywords, and you describe like, all right, what are the other things they encounter? Uh, so it is very much in the ilk of like, you know, my style of game, you know, the beak, feather and bone, uh, you know, single unit power game that's like, all right, this is a fun standalone experience, but also could be like a good session zero for world building. Um, and it's also just a game that like, I don't know, it encourages people to like come out of their shells and like engage in that world building process in bite-sized pieces you know because it can be so hard sometimes like to put someone on the spot and say like okay now it's your turn to like come up with a faction and make sure they're interesting and make sure they're this and make sure they're that and you know make sure that they relate to this thing or that thing when really like at any point in this game you're only having to describe like one thing at a time and it's always going to be influenced by like two numbers and your individual group. So hopefully that makes sense. Uh, it's one of those games that like, I am getting better about, you know, summarizing it in a succinct way, but that I have really loved seeing how it comes together on the table. Yeah, there it's the wheels are turning. I, it sounds really, really interesting. So when you do you play I'm going to say play the dominoes, but like, do you actually lay them out like end to end as if you're doing dominoes? So, yes. Yeah. So when first... I talk about like building a sequence, you are making mm -hmm. like an actual physical path across your table. Which, I mean, I can only assume that that concept came into your mind when you're designing this, since you're actually like on a journey with people who are diverting to take another path and you're actually laying out the path that they're actually like they're taking some up with the dominoes as you go that is such a nice clean elegant feel to the mechanics like it feels like it belongs you know so i i really love that i love when games have like that level of elegance where like the the mechanics especially if you have something physical like you know, like dice stacks and some things or things like that where you feel that like what you're doing mechanically really fits narratively so the idea of actually laying a path out with your dominoes as you're going on this path you know with the it's that's fantastic i absolutely love that um and so I, when there's so I, many if i can oh, no, go on something real quick related to that i actually uh when i teach game design i call that a uh, mechanic is metaphor you know, the idea being that, like, whatever mechanic you use as a game, you know, is also, like, there is, it doesn't necessarily always have to be, um, but by and large, there is, like, a metaphor to any kind of mechanic in a game. Even rolling a d20, you know, the meta, it is a metaphor for, like, the randomness of the universe, you know, uh, things like that. But I would generally teach um, inside-out design and outside-in design. Inside-out design uh, is the idea that you have a mechanic that you are really interested in. You're like, oh my gosh, um, I really love, uh, you know, let's take Dread as an example. The idea being like, I really love Jenga. I wonder if there is a game that I could design around Jenga, you know? And the metaphor there being is like, okay, so what 
kind of feelings does this uh, mechanic evoke? Like when I'm playing Jenga, like, are right, there's tension here, you know, there's precarity, there's always a risk of things falling over. Uh, maybe a story where like, you know, things could go awful at any moment where there is a certain level of like, you know, dread involved. And then you're kind of like, okay, if we're starting from the inside with the mechanic, then let's go out and find appropriate genre trappings to kind of put this around this so they really like kind of shake hands with each other. The opposite side of the coin would be outside in design, where it's like, oh my gosh, I love slasher flicks. You know, I love horror movies. I really want to design a role-playing game that like feels the same way that I feel when I watch a horror film. And so you can always kind of go the route of like, all right, well, I'm going to like use kind of a pretty standard mechanic with like D20s and I'm, you know, the flavor, the feeling is going to come from, you know, other elements. Like maybe it is the flavor text in the game itself. Maybe it's the visual design of something that is like, you know, very like stylish um, and like vibes forward, like a Morkborg. Um, or, you know, you can always say like, well, if I don't have the budget for art or if I am not as confident in my writing to kind of evoke this, how can I have a mechanic that kind of like helps get the player halfway there? And maybe through playtesting, through iterating, through design conversations, maybe then you get to Jenga. Because you're like, oh my gosh, Jenga is something that would work for this. A lot of people have Jenga sets. They can find them, you know, that kind of thing. Um so when I design a game, usually it's from one of those two paths. Either a mechanic comes to me or I'm like, oh my gosh, it would be so cool to come up with a game where like um, the randomization mechanic is how long it takes for a piece of ice to melt. Uh, what kind of stories can I tell that? Like what would be good ice stories, winter stories, et cetera. Um, and sometimes I'm just like, goddamn, I can't get enough of one piece i need to make a shonen style game or and that's where like single unique power came from i was like okay how can i take all these tropes that i love in these and kind of mechanize them into a way to like make your own cast of just like weird guys so this design for you then i guess was this an inside out or an outside in design when you chose dominoes definitely inside out you know, yeah. or sorry, outside in. Um, so in that I started with the material generated by Linnea and Renee of like, okay, mm -hmm. this is the style. This is the substance, you know, of like, when I put this book together, you know, I'm going to be including all of these things. And how do I make sure that the game mechanics, um, like not only complement them, but connect them to each other? you know, that kind of emphasize the fact that like all three of these things are like equal parts of the recipe. Yeah. And like I said, I, I think the dominoes are such a fantastic choice for exactly the, the metaphor that it has, like actually putting the path together. Um, also, when you're talking, I mean, there's so this is such a fun kind of system. Um, and as you said, you know, the as if you start with 2,348, is that what it is? 2,384? Yeah. 48. Um, 48. Uh, breaking off a smaller and bigger groups and things like that. But like my mind immediately started going to, man, there's so many things, there's so many ways you can hack something like this too. I mean, obviously you have the content generated from the, the writer and the artist that are already there, but 
I mean, you could do, you have a co-op version of this where like you have, you're going off in groups and I'm going off in groups and I'll see you in a week and then come back together and you tell me what happened you with your chunk of the group. You could make a racing game out of this yeah. of like who so gets furthest fastest. Um, yeah. And it is like very, uh, shoot, I, I had a point that I wanted to make. Um, uh, maybe it'll, it'll come to me later, but, uh, yeah, in terms of like people taking the game and hacking it and running with it, you know, I think sometimes it's nice to kind of have these games that just like serve as a spark for other people's creativity, you know, because like I am, I love whenever someone makes a game that is inspired by Beak, Feather and Bone, you know, or I love whenever like anyone kind of takes like, that's why I put an SRD out for it, you know. Sometimes uh, it really does take like someone else just kind of like turning on the light bulb, you know, like, oh, this is something we can use. Or it's like, I hadn't thought of dominoes or how many people are like, I never would have thought of Jenga if not for Dread. And then you wind up with games like Starcrossed, you know, that are like, okay, I this, you know, mechanic can also be this metaphor. Um, and so I'm very hopeful that when people are like, oh, all right, dominoes, that people take this concept and run with it, but also that people start to think about like, what are other things you can do with dominoes? Like you can stand them up so they topple down. Uh, and another exercise I do in my class is I'll do like an Iron Chef style exercise where I'll just hand out identical pieces of a material to everyone in the class. Uh, recently, I've done it with cardboard coasters. And we just spend like 10 minutes being like, hey, let's get a whiteboard out and talk about all the different ways we can manipulate this object. You know, you can like it's cardboard, so you could fold it in half if you want to. You could flip it like a coin. You could spin it on the table. You could write something on one end and conceal it. You could put it in your pocket. You could get it wet so that it's like, you know, different part. You can let it dry. You could light it on fire. Um, it can be really kind of useful to think about like, all right, what are things that people might have on hand? What are things that are common to the scene? And how can I make them serve my purpose? And I remember the thing that I wanted to talk about before of you saying like the 2,438 or 348. Uh, I swear I'll have it memorized by the end of this campaign. Um, the fact that Re Renee included that number in each of the chapters that for this project what that signaled to me is that this is a game where numbers are important numbers are something i should be paying attention to because there's also i could have gone a route that i was like okay there are no numbers in this game there are no dice there are no dominoes you know this is more of like a microscope style game where it's just note cards all the way down you know where you make a path that are just the things that you write on note cards or maybe it was a drawing game where it's like all right everyone draws different uh elements of the path but even small things like the fact that like okay numbers are something that is going to be present in the fiction they should be present in the mechanics as well was something that was like a big clue for me as a designer of like how can i make sure that like the mechanics and the flavor of this kind of go hand in hand it's really it's really interesting the the entire concept from beginning to end too and i will say one thing about dominoes if you don't use the extended set it is 2d6 um yeah. if you look at both sides of a dice and that is a mechanic that a lot of people in the scene use is 2d6 so um that exists out there um but again just being able to pull 
three people, three, you know, creatives together in, in like separate, but, you know, creative spaces, writing, um, art and design, which is the core of RPGs as well. Um, but from completely different areas. And like you said, two people that are outside of the RPG space and to make an RPG like this is such a cool thing. I really hope that it encourages more people, not only, like you said, fans of theirs to come into the RPG space, but to also extend into other non-RPG spaces for um, RPG, you know, inspiration or, or anything. Because um, it, it's when I heard about it, like I said, on the RTFM show, it sounded so interesting and seeing it now, like I'm just really like excited to actually get it in hand and actually uh, be able to engage with this. Um, it is I'll on Kickstarter right now. To, like, oh, yeah. The designers listening to the, this podcast, I hope this also encourages you to kind of like reach out to you know like different kinds of people you know reach out to folks who you know maybe haven't worked in rpgs before um because just because they haven't doesn't mean they wouldn't want to you know mm -hmm. and i'm a strong believer that our hobby is only enriched by welcoming people in whether it's different perspectives different styles different things like that and as a creative like we've all got to like feed ourselves we've all got to you know pay rent like i am increased the price of my games by like one or two dollars this year because like the cost of my healthcare went up because inflation is real and there are a lot of artists that are like oh you know i work in comics or i work in cartoons and that is like where i have uh gotten a reputation it's where i've gotten connections it's where i've built momentum but that doesn't mean that they also aren't trying to like do the hard work of making a living off their art and sometimes reaching out to someone and saying like hey i know you're very busy um i have a project that would need like 10 pieces of illustration and i really love your work if i can afford you i would love to hire you to work on this hopefully it's something that's approachable and maybe if this game does well, or maybe if you enjoy this process, then it will also be a portfolio piece for you. You know, like the 30 page game can help these people get work on a 300 page game. So don't think that your game is too small. Don't think that you are too small, you know, to work with the kind of artists that you love and admire. Uh, because for a lot of them, like one, if they aren't interested or if it would be, you know, cost more than you can afford, they're going to tell you. And that's like that conversation is not the scariest thing in the world. The scariest thing in the world is like over promising something that you can't pay for. Um and like if they say yes then like who knows what that could lead to who knows right. what kind of doors that it could open for them and not just for you so it is not a like it is not a selfish thing to look at someone whose work you love admire and say like i would love to work with you yeah not only that though everybody in every industry and in every scene you know um you get uh you get the brain of that thing. Like we have, we have game brain. We've seen all the mechanics. Like I can tell you all the probabilities of all the 2d6 rolls. And sometimes when you reach out to somebody, um, and that doesn't have that brain, they are capable of looking at the bigger picture. Cause sometimes when you know too much, it really narrows your view a little bit to the things that you know, and makes it more difficult to, to see the things that you don't know because you know all the things, right? Except you don't. Yeah. So 
being able to bring people in from other fields and other um especially creative interests and stuff uh with fresh eyes is a really cool thing to to have in all creative spaces as well so it's it's again really cool to bring on um not one but two people that aren't in the space um onto a project like this and and then still be able to gamify it in such an interesting way um but this is on Kickstarter right now. It is actively funding for Zine Quest. It's got 18 days left to go. It is less than $400 from funding. Um, oh, really? On That's great. <laughs> $9,617, dollars backers. Um, I mean, because it's extremely, it's extremely reasonably priced, which um, uh, as far as the tiers go, so when people go to Kickstarter and back this, as they should, because um, it looks fantastic, um, I was back at number one, just around there. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, you, you sniped it. Like, I, I, instantaneously, I, I'll have yeah. to like, include something special in yours for that, that, yeah. that hot number one spot. There we go. I, I, I don't have a folder of all my Kickstarter number one spots or anything. Um, <laughs> but um, what what can they get from Kickstarter? Like, What are the tiers from Kickstarter um, that they can, they can back at? Yeah. So uh, the first thing you're going to want to do is go to bit.ly slash details of that's d-e-t-a-i-l-s-o-f uh that's going to take you to the campaign and i believe in keeping it simple you know there are really only two reward tiers you can get the uh digital pdf version of the game uh for 10 bucks you can get the physical print version of the game for 20 bucks um, the first week of the campaign, uh, we we're offering an early backer special of uh, $15 for the physical version that also gets you the digital stuff. So if you're watching this live, you have an opportunity to do that before it ends at noon on Monday, uh, February 12th. Uh, if you were listening to the uh, YouTube or podcast or YouTube or things like that, it might be done, but I promise you, I this is very affordable for what we're offering. Uh, and yeah, I also just like, I don't believe in stretch goals. Um, I think that, you know, there are plenty of times that I have received stretch goals from creators uh, that I've been very grateful for their generosity. Uh, but as a creator, um, I think that like, I do not want this to balloon out of control. I do not want to gatekeep any of the things that I want to do with this game beyond a certain dollar amount. So I've set a goal that funds everything that I want this to be, that is enough to bring on collaborators like Hinakoto, that is enough to like produce the game as like something that is full color that comes with these nice stock um, packaged domino cutout sheets. Um, so you are going to be uh, getting, you know, everything uh for just 20 bucks uh or if you are someone who plays online um you know we are going to be including digital files of the dominoes as well there's going to be guidance inside the book uh for online play uh as well as single player uh play it's the probability um and like hand sizes and things like that for the game map out best for two to seven players but there's also going to be some accommodations for if you want to like really go wild and play it with like eight or more uh and yeah i think that like if there is kind of one silver lining uh to the pandemic uh it would be that like a lot more designers are and should be thinking about like uh, the accessibility of their games from like a remote standpoint, um, because 
people were playing remote games before uh you know the pandemic had everyone working from home you know and people also had different accessibility needs that you know required uh you know like things like remote play things like digital play spaces or you know even folks who just kind of prefer preferred it um you know there are the reason why i have uh like dexterity free options for games like hounds is because realizing that even small things like manipulating pieces you know can be something that is inaccessible for people uh so if you're the kind of person who likes to play with a group remotely um or even just prefers your gaming experiences uh mediated through uh, a digital interface uh there's going to be material and guidance in there for you too Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we talk about it all the time on the show. Uh, hyperlinks is like the bare minimum you can do to help people play digitally. It's a lot yeah. easier to just click a button than to scroll for 60 pages. Um, yeah. So, uh, but on top of that, EPUBs and making them, making sure that things are accessible for um, screen readers and things like that. It's just a really nice thing to have. And I, at the end of the day, we're going to get farther and farther from other human beings the further our, our, species exists we're going to get deeper and deeper into these screens so having things be more accessible uh like that is just a, it's a good thing to have um and the pandemic just as you said really just um accelerated that process of us being in front of these screens a little bit more so i mean i haven't played a physical game with another human being since the pandemic started so uh well, come definitely on in those digital spaces yeah one day we'll see if i ever 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 go back to pennsylvania again for any reason we'll see yeah hey it's um, not philly we've got like i don't know you know what bridges that's true it is true i, I went to <laughs> pittsburgh once uh the only time i ever went and my car broke down in pittsburgh i'm gonna stack there for half a day but yeah uh, it was nice it wanted to stay there you go it's nice it's because it like, wasn't please, philadelphia yeah please one more day um, but yeah, I mean, it's extremely, uh, affordable. It's a $10,000 goal. You have over 620 backers, which is approaching the numbers that you had for the possible worlds box set. Um, so at 10 and $20, that's an extremely good deal. And I think they, the, I can only imagine it's what, like media mail. I think I remember seeing that the, the U S shipping at least is, is an extremely affordable project. Yeah. Uh, it's round advantage is like four bucks um yeah. canada is right around 10 and then we use the um simple export option through pirate ship uh, which has been a godsend they have like kind of forwarding houses and things like that where they will batch ship things uh, so even international stuff is going to be in the ballpark of like 12 to 14 dollars uh which hey I would love if it was less expensive uh to ship anything but that's why I vote you know, because I want to try and also live in a society that, like, uh, you know, cares about its postal system and doesn't uh, price gouge people with, uh, you know, various hidden yeah. fees. That's true. I, 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 I encourage everybody out there that mails things on any type of regular basis to get a pirate ship account, please. Um but uh, but yeah, like I said, the project sounds fantastic. It's funding for 18 more days. Um, I'll try to have this up tomorrow, no promises. But if you are listening to this, like Tyler said, you probably missed out on that $15 deal. Um, but $20 is an insane deal for the quality that this is. Um, I definitely am extremely excited for this project. As I said numerous times since I heard about it, I hope this encourages more projects like this, um, reaching out into different spaces. Um, 
And not only this, but the other pro, I mean, I have most of the other stuff that you've done for, but for those people that don't have um, the things you have done, where can people find uh, those games and where this will be in the future? Uh, your one-stop shop is going to be possibleworldsgames.com uh, because uh, who knows what the social media landscape will be uh, in the coming weeks, months, or years, but I sure as hell own that URL. So I'm going to make sure you can find me. Uh, and yeah, there are links to our web store on there. Um, a couple of you know, some bio stuff and portfolio things that I need to update. Uh, but the most important thing there is, yeah, there's also my emails on there. There's a contact form page as well. Uh, please feel free to reach out. And um, something I tell a lot of my students is that if someone's email is publicly available on their website, they are open to hearing from you. They might not always say yes. They might not always respond in a timely manner. But if they are putting their email out there, that means you are welcome to email them. So please do not feel like you're inconveniencing me. Uh, if there's any kind of questions, follow up uh, on this campaign or even just on any of the other variety of like things that I've talked about. Um, it's been really cool. Like as people have learned that I worked in theater, folks are like, hey, so like your games are nice and things. But like, do you have any advice for someone living in a small town trying to like find ways to do theater things and like well i do yeah 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 it's funny i i this popped up in my head like a while ago and then um disappeared but i i took uh i took a literature class in college just a random credit and we just read plays all the time and it, yeah i mean yeah who's afraid of virginia wolf became my favorite play because of that class so um it's it's fun I... to read plays they're enjoyable I had, um, I, I, well, I have a bone to pick with you, and I agree. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Phenomenal play. I have worked very briefly, limited capacity, mostly digital, with Edward Albee um, uh, before he passed away. And uh, I will say that he is a genius, but he is kind of a curmudgeon. And the title of that play is not Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It is legally edward albies who's afraid of virginia wolf oh. because he wanted to make sure any time the play was talked about or listed on a program that his name was real big and like yeah. yes he deserves it he's one he was like one of our greatest uh american playwrights but also like my guy you gotta yeah. you gotta calm down some yeah, that by Edward Albee at the end was not enough. It had to be in no. the front. It had to be big. Well, we yeah. were laying out programs because we were doing uh, one of his one acts in like a series of one acts. And so there were plays by two other playwrights in that program. And according to like, you know, the contract, we had to list it as Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And so for the other plays in that series, they were like, well, it's going to stick out if we don't also list all of their plays as like, you know, uh, Maria Fornes's mud and, you know, this, that and the other thing. I'm like, OK, all right. The, so those are the little behind the that's what you've been sticking around to the end of the show for those exactly deep cut theatrical program and yeah. that that edward albee chat yeah um but uh but yeah back this project it looks fantastic it sounds fantastic get all the stuff from possible worlds 
games. Um, Thank you. It, Thank you. It is because really, like, there's there's no end to them. Uh, right. Really, like, once you pop, you just can't stop. Yeah, um, there's you know, just an endless possibilities of them. in litigation with the Pringles man. Um, <laughs> just some real brand confusion there. Yeah. But uh, grab all the stuff at possibleworldsgames.com. All the links to the Kickstarter and everything will be um, in wherever you're watching or listening to this down below. And you know our links. They're in on your the head thing. and They're in your everywhere. heart. You know, yeah. just like exactly where everything needs to be. It. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Tyler, for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Um, that is going to be our episode for today. Back this project. Back all the rest of the stuff. Support indie creators. Everyone have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye.